Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And we'll be looking together at verses 2 through 5 this morning. And the theme is Paul's Thanksgiving. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 2. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words for God's glory and for our edification. It says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. For our Gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, this uh, letter was written because Paul is in Corinth and he has previously sent Timothy to go to Thessalonica to check on how the church was doing because he was only there for a few weeks and then he had to flee. He was run out of town. So there was much to teach them that he didn't have the opportunity to teach. So he had to leave early. So out of great concern for their well-being, he sends Timothy to go up and check on them. And he moves down to Athens and then over to Corinth. And he's in Corinth waiting for Timothy to come to bring him news on how the church is doing in Thessalonica. Well, Timothy finally shows up and he gives him a fairly glowing report of how God is sustaining and blessing the church and they've remained faithful and they're still serving the Lord. So out of a a great gladness of heart, Paul now writes 1 Thessalonians back to the church. So after he gives his uh, introduction in verse 1, he just launches right into thanksgiving to God for this church. Uh, Paul begins almost all of his letters with some form of thanksgiving for what God is doing. There's only one exception. And what is that exception? Galatians. Yeah, Galatians, they were struggling too much for Paul to begin with thanksgiving. He actually chided them and rebuked them uh, because of how quickly they were forsaking the Gospel. But with all the other churches, Paul just begins his letters overflowing with thanksgiving for the grace of God. Notice in verse 2, Paul writes, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. So the word always is just indicating that uh, Paul has them on their hearts his heart and mind all the time. He's praying for them. He's giving thanks to God for them. And actually, Paul is practicing 
what he will later preach to the Thessalonians in chapter 5, verse 18, when he says, In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He's going to later on exhort them to give thanks in everything. And now he is practicing what he's preaching. He is writing this letter, giving thanks to God for all of them. And he's doing it all the time. His heart was very near and dear to these believers in the church at Thessalonica. What exactly was he giving thanks for? Well, we'll see that in a few moments. But he, he adds to his thanksgiving that he was always offering up on their behalf for them, that he's also making mention of them in his prayers. And of course, that includes Silas and Timothy as well. So they're always praying for them. They're always giving thanks to God for them. And I think there's a great application for us, just uh, reading verse 2, to see that Paul and his companions were men of prayer. They were men that thanked God regularly and often for God's grace in the life of the church. Paul was committed and devoted to prayer. And I think it's good for us to ask the Lord to help us to embrace a similar priority on the importance of prayer. We all fall short in this area, no doubt, many times. But the more we recognize how dependent we are upon God for everything in the Christian life, how much we need His Spirit, we need His grace, we need His mercy, we need His peace all the time, it ought to motivate us more in our prayer life. The worst thing we can do as believers is to live our life on autopilot. Meaning we just get up in the morning and we start our day and we just kind of go to work or we do whatever we're doing and we rarely ever connect with God in prayer. That's the worst thing we can do for our spiritual life because we're going to dry up spiritually if we don't stay in fellowship and contact with God regularly. It's too easy just to coast through our day and our daily lives and never rarely pray at all. We miss out on the the need for adoration and confession and thanksgiving and supplication, aspects of prayer that we ought to bring into our prayer life. I think we would all benefit by making prayer a greater part of our life. Pray more individually. Pray more as a family when you gather for family devotions. Pray with your children. Pray with the saints of God when we gather to pray. Prayer is vital. It's essential to the well-being of the life of the church. And yet, how easy it is for us to neglect it. Well, as we move into the next passage, we begin to see what Paul was thanking God for. And basically, we're going to break it down into two areas. He's going to thank God always for them because of of, uh, the immediate reasons that he's going to spell out in verse 3. He says, we're giving thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind, and then what follows are three virtues. 
your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is, this is what he begins to initially thank God for. And when you think about this, the Apostle Paul says that you're always on our mind. We're constantly bearing you in our mind. We're remembering you all the time. We love you. Our heart is with you. We're thanking God for you. And we're thanking God specifically because we have seen and Timothy has given a good report of these virtues that God is growing in your life. Work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope. This is kind of the first mention of the of the triad of faith, love, and hope that we find in Paul's writings quite often. But he's emphasizing these three virtues. And notice that he is giving praise and thanksgiving to God for these virtues. Now why is that? Work of faith? Labor of love? Steadfastness of hope? Why is he thanking God? Isn't that something that they did on their own? Well, no, it's not. Those virtues are alive and well in their life and in their, and in their church because of God's grace at work in them. That's why he's thanking God. He's not thanking them for their work of faith as if faith came from us or faith came from our own free will. He's saying, I thank God for your faith, your love, and your hope. Because that's the work of God to engender and produce that within our hearts. So He's rightfully giving the praise and the glory to the One who is behind it. The One who gives it. So He's praising God for these, uh, for these virtues. And each of these three virtues that He mentions, the second word really becomes the origin of the first word. So in the work of faith, it's the faith that produces the work. In the labor of love, it's the love that produces the labor. And thirdly, it's the hope that produces the steadfastness. The first word in each of these three descriptions really describes the activity caused by the second word. So let's look at the three of them. First is the work of faith. Paul is thanking God for their work of faith. This isn't work trying to be saved. This is the work of faith. These are the works that faith does. So these are the, the, the works that are produced by faith. He's not talking about works to earn their salvation in any way. But this really reflects what both Luther and Calvin meant when they used the expression that we are saved by faith alone but the faith that saves is never alone. It produces works. We're not saved by works, we're saved by faith alone. But if your faith is genuine, if it's alive, if it's real, then it will produce works. And so he's praising God for giving them this gift of faith and also for the fact that their faith is alive and resulting in works, obedience. Now he doesn't spell out what those works are. He probably is, uh, has in mind reports that Timothy gave and what he saw when he was there with the church about them caring for the sick, comforting the dying, instructing the ignorant, sharing the gospel, serving the family, serving the church, all kinds of works of faith. 
But he's praising God for that. The second thing, and, and by the way, when we, when we think about that, is our faith that kind of an act of faith as a church or as an individual? Does your faith produce works? Good works for the glory of God. Theirs did. And this is a church that we can strive by God's grace to emulate that we become rich in the works of faith as well. Secondly, Paul mentions uh, another virtue, the labor of love. This is a love that produces a, a kind of labor that labors to the point of weariness. That's a, this word for labor that he uses here is a word that implies a labor that will wear somebody out. It's a toilsome labor. It's a labor that brings us to the point of weariness and fatigue. This kind of love produces that kind of labor. It's a love that expends itself for other people. It implies it's a love that's willing to do difficult things and burdensome things and toilsome things out of love to do good to somebody else. It's the labor of love. Because true love will do that. It will labor. It will sacrifice. It will be worn out. It will be drained. Because that's the nature of love. It's a sacrificial kind of love. And it's willing to labor for the benefit and the blessing of other people for the glory of God. And this church had it. It had that labor of love. The word love here is the common word we've heard a lot about agape. It's interesting, in the Greek language there there are four words for love and all of them had a very unique nuance associated with it. Some of the words emphasized a brotherly kind of love. Another word emphasizes more of a sensual kind of love. But agape at this time really was not used that often in the the secular society. It didn't have any real strong concrete meanings associated with it. It was just kind of a generic, vague, general kind of a word for love. Well, what the, the New Testament does, what the authors of Scripture in the New Testament do is they take this word that basically doesn't have a strong meaning to it, and they begin to pour into it all of the Gospel to impregnate this word agape with with divine love qualities. So that the word agape began to be used for a sacrificial love that's willing to labor and be spent for the blessing of other people. For example, look at how John will describe the nature of this agape love. He says, we know love, agape, by this, that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So now they take this vague, general, uh, kind of undefined word for love and they begin to pour into it the very love of Christ. The sacrificial love that He gave when He gave Himself on the cross for us. And John says, this is the agape we should have for others. We should lay down our lives for the brethren as well. In 1 John 4.10, John said something similar. And this is love. Agape. He's going to define to us what agape now means. 
Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's one of those great uh, biblical words, propitiation. Remember what it means? Basically means the removal of God's wrath. So when Jesus died on the cross, He propitiated the Father. He removed God's wrath because He bore God's wrath that we deserve. He absorbed it. He was punished by it so that it was removed from us because He took it to Himself. And this is love. This is the character of agape love. So the Apostle Paul is thanking God for producing within them a love that is willing to sacrifice and labor for the benefit and the blessing of other people. That's the kind of love that they had. Are we characterized by this love? Do we show our love in in doing things for others that maybe we don't want to do? I mean, but, but we're willing to sacrifice what I want for the sake of being a blessing to somebody else? In our marriages? In our families? In our church? Do we show that labor of love, that sacrificial nature of love, that, that you're more important than I am? So I'm willing to do what I don't want to do to be a blessing to you? That's the nature of their love. Now that's a God-given Grace. That's why Paul is thanking God for seeing that in their church. We need to pray, oh God, give me more of that kind of love. Give me more of that kind of faith. And then he moves into the third virtue he's thanking God for is the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever you run into hope, it's normally the idea of our blessed future hope of glory and salvation that awaits us when Christ comes back. And that's the hope here. It's a hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And when He comes back, we will be glorified. We'll enter into the fullness of our salvation. We'll be with Him forever and ever. But that glorious hope that Paul will deal with as he's dealing with the second coming of Christ uh, throughout these two letters is a hope that they embraced. And it's a hope that produced steadfastness. Now what's significant about that is because this church at Thessalonica, when they heard the Gospel and they believed the Gospel and embraced it, they began to be persecuted by their culture and their society. Just to remind you of this, in in verse 6, which we won't get to today, Paul says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, receiving the Word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So they were going through much tribulation. And then in chapter 2, verse 14, he says that they endured the same sufferings at the hands of their own countrymen, even as we did from the Jews, Paul says. So they're going through their enduring sufferings. Now the hope that they have, the beauty of that hope, is that it produces perseverance in the face of persecution. They were experiencing this intense rejection, this alienation, this tribulation, this persecution from uh, the city officials, from the Jews, from their neighbors, and yet they were persevering 
because they had a hope of glory ahead of them. They didn't give up. They didn't faint. They didn't turn their back on Christ because this hope of glory was so strong that it enabled them to persevere through the tribulation, the sufferings, the afflictions that they were going through. This hope is not a longing for something uncertain in the future, like, gee, I hope it rains tomorrow. It's the kind of hope that's, that's solid. It's an anchor of our faith. It's a solid hope built on the solid rock of the promises of Jesus Christ that one day He will come again. It's that hope that gives us the perseverance in times of suffering and affliction and, and, and persecution. So, is this our hope? Do you have that hope? Do I have that hope? Does it encourage me when I'm going through struggles and trials of life to look beyond them to see the grace of God that awaits us in Christ Jesus and that gives me the grace and the faith to persevere, to, to serve the Lord in the midst of the, the roadblocks, the, the difficulties that are in my life. That's what the hope should do. That hope produced it steadfastness and perseverance in them. And that hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. These three virtues that Paul is thanking God for, the immediate thanksgiving that he gives is based on these three virtues. These three virtues are kind of a shorthand summary really of the essentials of the Christian life. Faith, love, and hope. It's something we should pray for. Something we should ask God to increase within our own lives, within our own church. Notice what he adds though at the end of this sentence. That this was in the presence of our God and Father. Now your Bible, your translation that you have, if you have the ESV for example, it puts this phrase at the front of verse 3 not at the end. There's two different ways you can interpret this. That Paul is giving thanks to God and remembering them in the presence of our God and Father. Or, he can be saying that I am constantly remembering your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in the Lord which you do in the presence of of our God and Father. So it can either refer to Paul's attitude or the attitude of the Thessalonians. I'm just going to cheat and say it can refer to both. But notice what this is implying. I don't know how, I'm, I'm sure many of y'all are familiar with Ligonier Ministry, and they put out a, a little study book regularly called Table Talk. And in their, in their devotions, those of you who have read that know this, that they usually have a little application section at the bottom of the page and it's entitled Coram Deo. And Coram Deo is Latin for before the face of God. And basically what that means, Coram Deo, is that we should, and this is Sproul's definition of Coram Deo, that it means to live one's entire life in the presence of God under the authority of God to the glory of God. Coram Deo. And I think what Paul is saying 
whether he's referring to himself or to the Thessalonians, that you're, by God's grace and blessing upon your life, you're manifesting three, three virtues because you're living your life in the presence of God. You're living your life quorum Deo. So that every facet of your life, you're living it before God's face. Because you want to please Him. You want to honor Him. You want to bring Him glory. You're living quorum Deo. And I think this is a powerful testimony to the grace of God in their lives. That they are living their life as it were in the presence of God the Father. Too often times it's easy for us to break up our life into compartments. And I can have a church religious compartment and I do this thing on Sunday and I do this thing and I do the, you know, my Bible reading in the morning. And then I have my work compartment life and I just kind of operate under a different set of principles and I do different things and if I have to cheat and lie or whatever, well, you know, that's, that's my work life. And then we may have a, my sports life or whatever it may be that I'm engaged in all these activities and I'm doing all of this. And we're disconnected from this Coram Deo philosophy that should describe all of our life. That we're living every area of my life before the face of God, wanting His blessing, wanting to please Him. And this is the way they were living These Thessalonians were living out these three virtues in the presence of God our Father because they were wanting to to live in His presence to please Him in everything they do. What What a goal to strive for. What a prayer to ask for God to help me to pray and live and and do every area of my life, quorum Deo, not to please me, but to please You, O God. And that was the heart that they had in the life that they lived. That's why Paul is praising God, giving thanks to God, because this church was a godly church living out their faith in the midst of much persecution and suffering. These are marks of a thriving church and of a thriving life. These, this church was known for their work of faith, their labor of love, their steadfastness of hope. And what a great motivation to examine our own lives and to seek to imitate their faith and love and hope as a church and also as individuals. May God bless us with that. But as thanksgiving for this church is not through yet, because He now moves from the immediate reasons for giving thanks to God, to the ultimate reason for His thanksgiving to God. And ultimately, the the ultimate reason is because God has elected them and saved them. And He's thanking God for doing it. Verse 4, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. For our Gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power. And in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Paul is giving thanks to God for these believers 
at Thessalonica because he says God has chosen you. Now notice how he begins, knowing brethren beloved by God. And here he describes these believers as brethren. Brethren who are beloved by God. And what a, what a comforting thing that would be for them to read at this time. To be reminded by the great Apostle Paul that not only are they brethren with him in the body of Christ, but they are beloved by God. Because you see their families, many of their families probably didn't love them. If the Jews came out of the synagogue, the Jews didn't love them. They would have been ostracized by their culture, by their society. They would have been despised by their pagan neighbors. They would have been hated by the world. And how encouraging it is to hear those words, but, but, God loves you. And that's the most important love of all. That God loves us. So he's reminding these believers, going through, no doubt, separation, going through heartbreak because of the consequences of their faith in Christ, to be reminded that they are brethren and they're also loved by God. This word for brethren, Paul loves this word. He uses it 28 times in these two letters. He loves to remind them that, look, we are brothers. We are all brethren. They're a family of faith. They're made up of redeemed sinners from every race, every social condition, every age group, every sex, and there's only two of them, every religious background, every economic level, a whole mishmash of of sinners redeemed by the blood of Christ in one church from all these different backgrounds, and they are a family of faith. They're all brethren. They're all in the same body. So he delights to remind them of it. You know, we all need to be reminded that God loves us. You may not feel loved right now by those around you. But God loves you. And His love extends into eternity past, to eternity future, and it's constant every moment of the present. His love cannot be lost. His love cannot be changed. It cannot falter. It cannot waver. His love will never blink. It is constant. It's deeper than the oceans. It's higher than the heavens. God loves you, His people in Christ. It's not like the Wi-Fi signal in my house that continually is buffering and sometimes just disappears. That fickled, unfaithful signal of that Wi-Fi company, I ought to fire them and go someplace else. But God's love is never like that. It's constant. You can't lose it. It'll never buffer. It'll never be delayed. You are always immersed in the love of God. And you need to remember that. Particularly when the trials seem to build up and mount up around us. He also says in verse 4, and he's giving thanks to God for this, because God chose you. God elected you. 
This is one of the great teachings that we find in, in uh, the Scriptures, this doctrine of election. Election is really the root of their fruit of faith, love, and hope. It's the ultimate reason for Paul's thanksgiving is because God has chosen to set His love upon them and chosen uh, to save them. I don't have time to uh, go through and review all that Paul taught on the doctrine of election, but I'm just going to briefly read some of the headings just by way of what you would get in other letters. The letter of Romans certainly is going to be a heavy hitter in this, but our election is rooted in God's great love as it is here in these verses. You're beloved by God, and He thanks God because He elected you. He chose you, but it comes out of His great love for sinners, a love that we don't deserve. We can't earn it. It's an election from all eternity. He made that choice from before the foundation of the world. It's an election unto salvation. That's why people get saved. It's an election of individuals, not of corporate bodies. God chose Israel as a corporate body in the Old Testament, but not for salvation. He chooses in the church those who are individuals and He saves them individually. Jacob I love, Esau I hated. Romans chapter 9. He doesn't just choose nations, He chooses individuals. It's unconditional. It's not based on anything that we've done. Purely for His own reasons, He has chose to save you and me if you know the Lord here this morning. This election results in saving faith. It's not because God looked down through the ages to see your faith and then He chose you. No, He chose you and that election brings about the action of the Spirit to actually impart faith to you so you can be saved. And ultimately, it's for His glory. So Paul is thanking God for His love for them and for His choosing of them. And then in verse 5, he elaborates a little bit more on that when he says he's also thanking God. That's the general idea of the context. He's thanking God for our Gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. So this is more evidence of what Paul knows about them, why he knows they're of God's elect, because he sees the evidence of that in their life. So if you look at this in verse 5, he says, our Gospel didn't come to you in word only, but in power and the Holy Spirit. And those are kind of joined together. Power and the Holy Spirit. And with full conviction. This word for power is the word, the Greek word dunamis. We get our English word dynamite from it. But it certainly uh, speaks to the idea that salvation is totally from God. Uh if you summarize the work of the Trinity in our salvation, since Paul is now mentioning the Holy Spirit in verse 5, we can summarize the work of the Holy Spirit as, or the work of the Trinity, excuse me, that the Father chooses, He administers salvation, the Son redeems, He accomplishes salvation, and the Spirit regenerates, He applies salvation. And that's what He's referring to in verse 5. Our Word, the Gospel, when we preached it to you Thessalonians, it didn't come in Word only. It came in the power of the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And that's why you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
When the Word is preached without the power of the Holy Spirit, the seed of the Gospel falls on hearts like the roadside soil in our Lord's parable. That packed down, hardened soil, the seed falls on it, but it doesn't penetrate. It just lies on the surface and then the the birds flock down and gobble it, take it away. When the Word is preached without the power of the Holy Spirit, then people respond by yawning, or they look at their emails, or they go shopping online, or but they remain loyal to their idols. They're unchanged, they're unmoved. I don't need it. Go bother somebody else. When the Word of God is preached without power, then it ends up kind of like what Paul experienced in Athens, where there was little fruit, and the Word fell on hearts made of concrete when there's no power, when the Spirit is not working. A couple of weeks ago in my Sunday school class, I told a story of when the Lord saved me when I was a sophomore in college, I got involved with a a campus ministry. And we would go into fraternities and we would hold gospel meetings. We'd invite all the, the people in that fraternity to come and hear. And we would present the gospel to them. And we'd have a testimony. And then at the end, we would hand out three by five cards and we'd ask them if they wanted to put their information on it, write a response, let us know if they trusted Christ or not. And after one of those meetings in one of those fraternity houses, the little team that I was a part of took all those cards and we went over uh, into a dorm room and we started reading and praying over them. And I'll never forget one of the cards read, the guy didn't put his name or no information, but he wrote down on that card, Your words fell on deaf ears. That's the Word preached without power. The Word falls on deaf ears. And nobody repents. And nobody believes. But when the Word is preached with power, the power of the Holy Spirit, then the dead are raised. And unbelievers suddenly become believers because of the power of God to change their hearts and awaken them to their need, their sinfulness, their their need for forgiveness and salvation. When the Word of God is preached with the power of the Holy Spirit, then the dead rise up and come forth. It's like Lazarus, come forth. Words spoken in the power of the Spirit of God that imparts life to that spiritually dead soul. And suddenly it becomes alive and the dungeon flamed with with light and my chains fell off and, and I went forth and followed the Lord. As Wesley wrote in one of his hymns. That's when the Word of God is preached in power and in the Spirit and with full conviction. And that was the blessing that God sent to the church at Thessalonica. He said, you just didn't hear the the Gospel preached in word only. But the Spirit of God attended the preaching of the Word and you heard it and your heart was changed and opened and you came to faith. It's just like with Lydia in Acts 16. She heard Paul preaching the Word, no response. But then it says, God opened her heart to respond to the things that Paul was preaching. And suddenly the lights came on. She 
felt her sin. She saw the beauty and glory and atonement of Christ and she placed her faith in Christ and got saved. That's when there's power. That's when there's Holy Spirit at work. And that's when there's full conviction. The full conviction here is not the conviction of sin per se, but it's the assurance of the truth of what Paul was preaching. There's a different word that means the conviction of sin. This is a full assurance that the Spirit of God so impressed upon their hearts that the Gospel was true and they needed Christ to be saved. And that's the power of God that brought about their conversion. That's why Paul is thanking God for their conversion. Because it's a miraculous work of God to bring them to faith. And then he adds at the end, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And here he's just bearing witness that you saw that we were sincere. You saw that we believed 100% what we were preaching. We lived a life pursuing godliness in your midst. You saw our testimony and it made sense that we were not like those traveling philosophers that were going around at this time uh, peddling their philosophical ideas, taking advantage of people. Their character wasn't real. We're not like those guys. You saw the kind of men we were. And that added strength to the conviction of the truth of the Gospel. So Paul, in effect, is saying, we know God chose you because He saved you. We see your faith. And that's a mark of you being one of God's elect. It's a point of interest, I just say this in passing, that Paul is telling them that they were elected by God. He doesn't deal with any objections. He doesn't have to spend time trying to explain the doctrine of election to them because he had already done that. And he had only been there for a few weeks. Now, when he writes the letter to the Romans, he's never been in that church before. He's never taught them. So when he talks about election and depravity, he goes to great lengths to deal with objections. He doesn't have to do it here. Because apparently, one of the foundational teachings that Paul did whenever he went to a new church and God saved people was to teach him about the doctrine of election. That's why he can just lay it out there. I praise God because of his choice of you. But he doesn't have to defend it. He doesn't have to you know, deal with the objections. Well, if God has chosen whom He's going to save, then why evangelize? He didn't have to do any of that because he had already done it. And I think what this... Uh, teaches me is that the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of election was foundational to Paul's ministry. It's one of the things he taught the believers first out of the, out of the starting gate when they came to faith. Unlike eschatology, I mean, my goodness, there's all kinds of questions he has to answer when it comes to the, to the second coming of Christ. But as terms of election, they knew it. He didn't have to answer questions because he had already taught them that glorious truth. So this is a kind of an interesting observation about just how the priority that he placed on this doctrine of unconditional election. Well, in conclusion, let me wrap up by just reviewing three main points in this passage. 
The first one is that Paul is giving thanks to God for the immediate reason of their fruit. And that is their work of faith, their labor of love, the steadfastness of their hope. He's thanking God for that because God is working all that within them by His grace. Secondly, Paul is giving thanks to God for the ultimate reason. That God elected them, saved them through the preaching of the, of the Gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit's ministry in their hearts. And then thirdly and finally, Paul's heart was full of thanksgiving and prayer because he and the Thessalonians lived Coram Deo. He lived, they lived, before the face of God. And I would set before you that the more we live Coram Deo, before the face of God, in the presence of God, bringing every part of my life under His authority for His glory, that your heart will be more given to thanksgiving and to prayer because of the closeness of the fellowship when we live Coram Deo. As R.C. Sproul defined the meaning of that expression, to, to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and to the glory of God. Isn't that the kind of life you would like to live? It's certainly mine. And I know I fall short in many, many ways. But the church of Thessalonica is a beaming example of what we should strive for. To live Coram Deo. To let our hearts overflow with thanksgiving for the grace and salvation and, and election and, and our salvation. Because that will flow out of a heart that is walking and living in the presence of Almighty God. May God help each of us to live our life more consistently for Him daily. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank You, Lord, for the incredible outpouring of Your grace upon this church. That even though they were suffering and persecuted and afflicted in so many ways, Lord, their faith shined brightly. We're going to see later on in this chapter just how how well their, their life produced within them this notion of being the, the light of the world and the salt of the earth. And just their evangelism and their outreach as well, Lord. And Father, we, we look at our own lives and oftentimes we thank Lord, we need more grace. That we can live in Your presence. That we can have more of that work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope that we would be committed to serving You and loving You and thanking You, Lord, for our salvation and, and striving by Your grace to live in Your presence more consistently and faithfully. Lord, forgive us of the many times when we fall short and grant us more the fruit of Your Spirit, more grace, that we might live our lives with our eyes upon Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we might live ultimately for His glory and honor. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.